I've remembered this time to write down and tell you that if you take your Bibles from the pew, you'll find Isaiah 58 on page 734. And we always do encourage you to have a Bible open in front of you as we study God's Word together. We are in chapter 58 of Isaiah, a chapter that I have for a a very long time been looking forward to. It's one of my favorite chapters of the book of Isaiah. And there was a great temptation for me to be polemical. If you know what polemics is, you know that it is a rather pointed attack and argument against a certain position that your opponent is holding. There is a place for polemics in preaching. There is a place for polemics in debate. Uh, But I did not want to go that route this morning because I don't think Isaiah 58 takes that tact. Rather, I wanted to approach this more like an appeal, a wooing, or an inviting invitation, which is really how I see what is happening in verses 13 and 14, which are the central thoughts for us this morning from this chapter. Isaiah itself, as a prophecy you will no doubt remember, is full of invitations, full of passages where the Lord woos his people, where he invites them. Uh, There are plenty of passages of commands and even polemics in uh, Isaiah as well. But there are so many of these wonderful invitations the Lord extends to his people who are often hard-hearted and rebellious. You'll no doubt remember chapter 40, the beginning of this second major section in Isaiah. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. That's invitational language for the people of God to consider what God himself has done, what he has accomplished on their behalf. We can't remember because it was recent, chapter 55, come everyone who thirsts, God enabling us to feel that thirst, of course, as we noted, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. An emphasis again upon the gracious invitation of our God to take part in to enjoy the wonders of his grace through what he has done through Jesus or consider that how the book begins the book begins very strongly we remember the call of Isaiah in the first six chapters but the book begins with a wonderful and perhaps the greatest of invitations that we have in the book of Isaiah and perhaps even the Bible a great invitation to sinners like you and like me, and it sets the whole tenor of the book. Come now, this is in chapter 1, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel... You shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so when we approach chapter 58, I'm simply inviting you to come and let us reason together as God's people as to what he says in this most important matter for the Christian life, for all of us here this morning. Would you please stand then, as is our practice when we read the word of God, as you are able 
Isaiah 58, all 14 verses. Give your attention now. This is God's holy word. Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask me of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer you. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desires in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, you are so gracious to us, kind, and you know us that we are but flesh. And so under the preaching of your word, be gracious unto us by your spirit, work within us. Lead us into all truth and understanding for your own glory and for our good, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you have no doubt where we're going. This chapter is about the Christian Sabbath or what the New Testament calls the Lord's Day. 
The obvious meaning of that particular phrase, the Lord's Day, is obvious, of course. It's the day that belongs to the Lord, but has been given to us for our good. Our Lord Jesus taught that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And so it is God's gift to us. And that view of the Sabbath, I think, is fitting and appropriate and consistent with everything the Bible teaches about this day. It is God's gift to us. It is to be a blessing and an encouragement to our faith. In our time this morning, I certainly will not answer every question about this important doctrine. I commend to you the many excellent resources, not the least of which is our own confession and its treatment of the Lord's Day and of worship that we find in chapter uh, 21, along with the teaching of the larger and shorter catechisms. However, as we begin, there is something I want to state in uh, the front of everything, up front. And that is an assumption that I am making and that I'm encouraging you to make as well as we study this issue. The Sabbath is primarily about the worship of God. It's primarily about worship. What I mean by that is that the primary emphasis of the day and why we call it a delight and a joy is not because primarily we get to rest from the things we do the other six days. That is a part of the structure, the background. It's a creation order. It's not from the law simply, but it goes back to creation. There is an element of rest that is part of the Sabbath, but we don't want to invert or, or sort of mix up or confuse what the main emphasis in the Bible is when we talk about the Sabbath. It is about the worship of God, resting from all of these things, as we often find even in this passage, the teaching on the Sabbath often leads to a negative emphasis upon the Sabbath. Well, pastor, if I'm to rest, what is it that I'm to rest from? What am I allowed to do on these days? What are you telling me are the rules, etc.? That is not the emphasis, the main emphasis of the Sabbath day. The, the teaching, as we'll see this morning, on what we rest from or what we lay aside is always in deference to the main focus of the Sabbath or the Lord's Day, and that is the worship of God. And therefore, the principle is because the worship of God is central, we ought to lay aside those things, take a rest from them, if you will, in order to give ourselves fully to the worship of God, because that is what this day is about. And that is where the emphasis upon delight and joy is. It is in our experience of the worship of God. The resting serves the purpose of the day that we might more fully give ourselves to the worship of our great God. And none of us this morning would argue at all that that is the emphasis upon the Sabbath and that he is worthy of that worship. He's worthy of it every moment of every day of our lives. But God, in his mercy and knowing us and knowing that we are but flesh and frail, has so graciously, by example, by practice, by instruction and command, set apart one day in seven the principle of one in seven, that we might give it fully to the worship of our great God. And surely he is worthy again of it. 
Now, I think this has been evident, at least in my own experience, over the last 18 plus months as uh, we come to hate that word COVID and all that it has meant for our nation, for the world in which we live, for our own lives and how our lives have been fundamentally changed. I think we see a lesson in the 18 months that we've just been through and the many that will follow. What we missed so much during those days of isolation and what we felt robbed of was not that we weren't getting enough rest. In fact, most of us were resting too much. And in God's providence, much of that was a great joy for our families to get reconnected and to begin to uh, know each other again, to enjoy things we don't normally get to enjoy. That was a mercy of God. But when it came to Sundays, we weren't missing the fact that we were not keeping the Sabbath because we weren't resting. We were resting. We were tuning into our televisions to watch pastors with balloons in the audience here representing all of you, preaching to balloons and preaching to you at home. All of us felt at odds. And what we were missing was the heart of the Sabbath day, the gathering of God's people in worship together. Now, we were still worshiping, and we were still setting that time aside. But all of us, in my conversations with so many of you, all of us spoke of how it was so difficult to enter the whole of the day into the worship of God when we didn't have morning and evening worship when we weren't able to be in fellowship with one another and to enjoy our bond and fellowship in the Lord Jesus Christ. What we were really missing was worship because that's what this day is about. Gathered in one place as the Lord commands. In fact, many again noted that what was really difficult was that they felt the world was creeping into this day more and more and more as we were kept from gathering together in worship. And and we can understand and see how that so easily, easily happens. The language of Exodus 31 uh, centers upon worship as well. The Lord giving to his people this day, he says in Exodus 31, as a covenant forever. It was by God set apart as a day of worship, the holy convocation of God's people gathered Together, They were to do that in the pattern that God himself had set as he rested and refreshed himself, delighted himself in all that he has done. He then gives a day for God's people to delight themselves in who God is and all that he has accomplished for us. It is, according to Exodus 31 again, it is the covenant. It's synonymous. It marks God's people out as those who are in covenant with him. It was only the Israelites as they obeyed God's command to gather and worship on the Lord's Day or the Old Testament Sabbath. It was only the Israelites who were doing that. They were gathering intentionally, setting the day apart, laying aside all of their work so they can give themselves more to the worship of God, to be refreshed in his presence, to hear from God, etc. We saw that in chapter 56 where We noted that the Sabbath was first introduced in this section of Isaiah. And we noted the importance of that in chapter 56, where foreigners and eunuchs, two people prevented from coming into worship because of their status providentially in life. They couldn't enter into the presence of God in the temple. 
And God says, as he looks forward to the gospel going beyond the Jews to the Gentiles as well, to foreigners and to eunuchs, to all of those who are broken, he says, these are going to come and they're going to come and they're going to keep my Sabbath. What does it mean to keep the Sabbath? It means to worship God. It means to come with his people in worship and not to profane the day that God has given as a picture of God gathering together with his people on that day. Jesus reinforces this idea in John chapter 4, talking to the Samaritan woman at the well when he says to her, but the hour is coming and is now here because Jesus is here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What is it that the Father is looking for? Here is the only true seeker-sensitive church. It's the Father seeking. The Father is seeking such people to worship him, to gather them together in one place as one people to worship him. Now that takes place all over the world as people gather in individual places. But the, the picture is that we are gathered together wherever it is and whenever it is that we worship. On that day, we are joined together with the saints all over the world no matter when they gather for worship and with the saints in heaven and with angels and archangels, we are gathered together. Pastor Fisher was right when he began the service by reminding us that that is the view of what we do here in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. We're lifted up into the presence of God in the Holy Spirit, in Christ, gathered before God to offer to him our worship. And that is what this day is all about. That's the focus. That is my assumption as we move forward. The primary emphasis is not upon the rest. That's part of the pattern. But it serves a purpose, a purpose that we might give ourselves more fully to the worship of God. And so we're going to move through this chapter. And as quickly as we can, we're going to see in three parts how the Lord moves us along in understanding this. Now, it begins with fasting, and some people are saying, well, that's not worship. Well, it is an act of worship. It was commanded by God, especially on the Day of Atonement, uh, but it, it is an active part of worship, okay? But, but what happens here is the whole focus is on the Lord's Day. Uh, 13 and 14, the last two verses, control the whole of the chapter, The Lord's going to identify the problem among his people. He's going to show the people the right way. And then he's going to provide the remedy for his people. The remedy is the Sabbath day and the right observance of the Sabbath day. I love what one writer says as he looks at the whole chapter. And it's so true. Isaiah 58 begins with a fast without blessing and ends with a feast with a blessing. It begins with a fast without blessing. God's not honoring their fast. It ends with a feast, which is what the Sabbath is, as we feast upon the Lord on this day, and the blessings that attend that for every believer who walks in that way. So join me as we go through this and reason together. In verses 1 through 5, we have What really is the problem uh, in Isaiah's day? It is the problem in our day as well. It's the problem in every day. And it is heartless worship or worship without the heart. Another writer says, our greatest crimes lie in our piety. That's a great statement. Our greatest crimes 
lie in our piety. What he means by that, it is often in our routine exercise in the holy things that God calls us to, where we sin so often and so greatly against the Lord. And the primary way that happens is by having our hearts far from him, by allowing our religious conduct, our worship, our gathering before him to be mere formalism, to be mere routine, to have our hearts again far from him, to have lives lived outside of Sunday, betray the lives we seek to present before him on Sunday. That's the issue. That's the problem often. And it was surely the problem in Isaiah's day as well. It was heartless, heartless worship. Isaiah mentioned it from the very beginning of his uh, prophecy when he writes and the Lord speaks through him in chapter 1, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. Here are all the right things that he's commanded them. They're doing them. I've had enough, he says, of burnt offerings of rams. I've had it up to here, he says, and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling in my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Chapter 29, Isaiah gets to the heart of the issue. And, and this verse is so central. Verse 13, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far, far from me. You see the problem of these verses. We didn't read them again, but you can see it as you scan these verses, verses 1 through 5. They pretend that they're a people, a nation who does righteousness. They're pretending to be a people who delights to draw near to God. They complain in verse 3, we've done everything you've said, God. Why aren't we experiencing your blessing upon our lives? Why don't we know the blessings that you promised to our fathers? We have done jot and tittle everything you told us to do, and yet you will not bless us. The Lord puts his finger on it when he says, the days of your fast are the days where you just seek your own pleasure. You oppress your workers. You fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose that you simply humble yourselves? That you bend over like a reed in the wind? That you cover your head with, with ashes and wear sackcloth on your bodies? Is that really what you think the fast that I delight in is all about? People do this all of the time. People do it today as they come to church. They say, look, Lord, I'm coming to church. I'm there morning, and guess what, Lord? I'm there evening as well, twice in the same day. I deserve your blessing. My life should be overflowing with blessing. The Lord says that sometimes we do so with a heart that is far from him. And because of that, we ought not ever to expect his favor or his blessing, that he would be impressed, that he would somehow turn to us, that he would heal us and strengthen us. 
when our hearts are so far from him. That's the problem. It's the problem in these verses. It's the problem throughout all of Isaiah. It's the problem of heartless worship. Worship merely external and formal in appearance, but lacking the heart of love towards God, a recognition of his kindness and grace and mercy to us, a delighting, as he'll say later in these same verses, in the Lord himself. So the problem, and we don't need to spend more time on this, it's clear what the problem is. He'll repeat it in different ways as he goes through in the coming verses. But the problem is a heartless worship before God. Secondly, he offers in verses 6 through 12 a very fitting correction. A very fitting correction. Now, when you read verses 6 through 12, as we have, he begins in verse 6 saying, isn't this the fast that I choose? Isn't this the fast, in other words, that I take delight in? If you do this kind of fast, then, then I will be pleased. Now, it's interesting because he actually doesn't talk about fasting in the literal sense because the issue is not fasting. The issue is performing these religious duties with a heart that is far from God. That's the issue. And so when he talks about, is not this the fast I've chosen, he talks about good works, what we would refer to as good works, a demonstration of a heart, a demonstration of a heart that is turned toward God. A heart engaged means a life engaged. That's what he's saying. The one flows out of the other. A heart engaged in worship will lead to a life engaged in works of service, works that are good before God and pleasing in his sight. Not, and please never confuse this, not that those works then serve as a basis for God to say, I accept you, but rather as an evidence in the life of the worshiper that he truly knows God and that God has already worked within him. You know, Micah was a prophet. He's not only one of our kids in our church, son of our other pastor and his wife, but Micah is a contemporary prophet of Isaiah, and he saw the same thing. As he ministered to those people, the Lord enabled him to see and to speak to the same issue that was going on in that same period of time. You remember those words from chapter 6. They're probably the most famous apart uh, from chapter 5. But in chapter 6, it says this, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Those are great questions, probably questions that were really asked. What in the world is the Lord looking for? If I withhold nothing and give my own firstborn for my transgression, will he finally be pleased? You see the issue. Their heart was far from him. It was a mere formality for them to go down the list of what God required in worship and to say, if I do this, this, and this, it's like a formula. God will immediately bless. That's the way it works. It's not the way it works. God sees the heart. He knows the heart. 
You know, his words, they're famous. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Not to fast, not to say your prayers three times a day, not to read your Bible every day, not to come to church morning and evening on Sundays, but an evidence of a life that has been transformed because the person and the heart has already been engaged with God. A heart engaged means a life engaged. It it can't ever be opposite that or different from that. The one always flows out of the other. And what this people were trying to do is to break that down and to say, no, I can have the formality and expect that as I live with a heart disengaged from God, God's going to bless me. A heart engaged means a life engaged. Now, that's what's happening in these verses. He tells them what they need to do to loose the bonds of wickedness. Verse 6, undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke, to give and share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when they see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. The harms, the harm that we do to our own families, he's talking about there. Uh, And all of that that happens. Uh, Those are the things he identifies. Nothing about fasting. It's not fasting. The issue isn't fasting. Fasting means nothing to God. It's the heart engaged and the life engaged in serving and loving others as God commands. It's a wonderful picture. The promises that follow we'll talk about in a little bit because I think they more go with Verse 14, uh, they, they better go with verse 14. They're fleshed out here. We'll return to them at that point. But I like what Isaiah says here as he talks about these issues. Um, and what one commentator says about chapter 58, he calls it an urgent call to action. And that fits well with what we are seeing in these verses. It's a call to doing, to acting Specifically, this entails acts of mercy and of justice. And then he quotes this one writer, quotes Martin Luther, who has this great quote about faith that is active. You know, James says, faith without works is dead. It's the same principle, right? A faith that you profess to have by following all the the commandments of God with regard to his worship and doing everything right, checking the boxes. If, If you have no works that follow after that, James says it's dead. It's not real faith. The devil has that kind of faith. He believes God, that God is God, who he says he is. He believes that Jesus is the son of God. But the devil isn't working to the glory of God, except he serves that glory ultimately uh, overall. This is what Luther said. Faith is a living, busy, active, and mighty thing. And so it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question even rises, it has already done them and is already at the doing of them. You see how Luther understands true, genuine, biblical faith issuing forth in good works? He says, we don't even need to question what is it God wants us to do. It is by the Spirit leading us that we are automatically, incessantly doing them to the glory and praise of God as an evidence of the work of his grace in our lives. 
That's the correction, to come back into a proper understanding of what it is the Lord really requires. The correction is a heart-filled worship that issues forth in a life engaged in serving and honoring God, as he calls us to do. Not violating his law by mistreating others and short-circuiting the whole thing. That's exactly what the Lord says is happening. And there's the correction to do what the Lord actually commands, justice and kindness and walking humbly before our God, as Micah the prophet said as well. And then finally in verses 13 and 14, and we're going to see the full picture now. He really does give us what I'm calling here the remedy. This is the remedy, brothers and sisters, that the Lord sets before us. And it is an invitation. It is a call to come and reason together with the Lord. And to see what God has done that we might have a remedy for this great problem. Now at the outset, yes, it is possible that we might, even as we understand the Sabbath as he describes it here, still do it with hearts disengaged from the Lord. We can take anything the Lord calls good and we can make it bad. Because that's what sinful people do. So it is possible. But when we see what the Lord says here, this really is the remedy. It presumes that the Sabbath is about worship. It presumes that the Sabbath calls for a heart engaged in worship. It presumes that that then calls for a life engaged in service and the doing of good as God commands. It presumes all of that. If that is all true, then this really is the remedy to our problem and to their problem as well. Look at these two verses. This really is the focus of our study. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, this has always confused me. What does he mean by turning back your foot from the Sabbath? It's kind of weird language. Some other translations say it slightly differently. That what's in view here is what they were doing in trampling the Sabbath. That's one expression of this. If you turn back from trampling underfoot, the The picture is of of not seeing the Sabbath as God had created and given it to man as a gift, but instead trampling it by their actions, their heartless worship under their feet. But it also has a reference to how they were walking and how they were choosing to walk in the path of their observance, if you will, of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given. There's no question about the Sabbath being an everlasting covenant to God's people. There's no question, I would argue, and it's beyond this sermon to make all the arguments, that the New Testament has a Christian Sabbath called the Lord's Day. I would argue that in other times, and we can talk about that. There's no question of the continuity of this, this marker of what it means to be in covenant with God. We are, as God's people, old and new, a Sabbath-observing people because he's given his people one day in seven as a sign of his covenant with us. That is an important point. We can misuse it. We can do it in a heartless way. We can do all of that. But when we follow it and what the Lord says in these verses, it becomes for us a source of incredible, boundless blessing as we give ourselves to the proper observance of it. Verse 13 contains the call to his people. If you turn back your foot, 
No longer trample it, no longer walk in the way that you're trying to walk, which he sort of fleshes out here. If you do that, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and you call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, that means you honor the day, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly. Now that that is a call to observe the Sabbath in a certain way. And that as we do, as we see in verse 14 and verses 8 through 12, there are great attending blessings to it. But notice the important part here, as you see all of this, that these Uh, things that the Lord says are correctives, the remedy for the struggle that they're having, all serve the purpose again that we might delight ourselves in him without distraction, without the normal distractions of our everyday lives, giving ourselves fully and wholly as much as God would allow us to the worship, to the delighting ourselves in him. Matthew Henry says this with regard to what this call is all about. Everything, he says, must be done that puts an honor on the day and is expressive of our high thoughts of it. We must call it a delight, not a task, not a burden. We must delight ourselves in it and in the Lord who gave it to us, in the restraints it lays upon us and the services it obliges us to do. We must be in our element when we are worshiping God and in communion with him and other believers. How amiable, how lovely are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. We must not only count it a delight, but call it so. We must openly profess the complacency we take in the day and the duties of it. We must call it so to God in thanksgiving for it an earnest desire of his grace to enable us to do the work of the day in its day because we delight in it. We must call it so to others, to invite them to come and share in the pleasure of it, and we must call it so to ourselves, that we may not entertain the least thought of wishing the Sabbath gone. Matthew Henry is right as he considers this great call. This is the remedy. This is what God calls us to. And then, as he so often does, in verse 14, he annexes or adds promises to the day. Promises that God will indeed respond. Remember, the issue of chapter 58 is the people saying, we did all of this, Lord, and you didn't keep up your end of the bargain. You didn't bless us like you promised. The Lord says in this corrective, this remedy, do what I command, what I've given you, what I've given to you as a gift, and then you will know. Surely you will know the blessings that attend the obedience to this command and this remedy. Note the covenantal language in verse 14, as he says, I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. We're we're learning about the heritage of Jacob, our father, which is the heritage of Abraham and Isaac. The promises made to our forefathers fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the joys, the blessings that flow out of the covenant. This is covenantal language because the Sabbath is a mark of our covenant with God. We are in covenant with him as we keep the Sabbath. We pleasure and delight in the Lord himself. 
That's what verse 14 says. Then you shall take delight in the Lord. Notice it's not the emphasis in that verse. It's not in the day, but we take delight in the day because the Lord gave it to us and enables us to take delight through it in him. The focus is on the Lord. That's why the blessings flow. It's not because we simply follow the day as the Lord commands. It's because we are in communion with God, delighting ourselves in him and the blessings that he's promised flow through that relationship to his people as they follow all of these guidelines and guidance that he gives to us. I said we turn back to 8 through 12. If you want to look at those verses again real quickly, one writer, again, and I'm really dependent on Derek Thomas here. He does a little book uh, where he talks about these blessings. These are his, and I'm just going to refer them to you. If you look at 8 through 12, uh, he really does a great job in summarizing the blessings. He says part of the blessings are these, the promises of God, fresh beginning like a new dawn, You see that in the language of verse 8. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn. Your healing shall spring up speedily. You know, the New Testament changes everything, right? In the Old Testament, we work, 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 we rest. In the New Testament, because of Christ, the whole paradigm is shifted. We begin the week with rest in Jesus, rest in what God has done, and we live out of that the rest of the week. And, And what... Thomas is saying here is that that's the mark of the Sabbath. We begin by resting, laying aside those things that would distract us from the worship, the main point of the day, and beginning fresh by being renewed. There's healing and restoration. You can follow through the verses. I won't point them out. There's gospel security as we walk in the righteousness, he says here in verse 8, that will go before us, the righteousness that is ours in Christ. There's protection from our enemies in the form of the Lord's glory being behind us as our guard and keeper. There's communion with God as God says, I will meet with you, I will hear you, I will say, according to verse 9, here I am, I will respond to you. There's guidance as the Lord leads us along the path that he's called us to walk in this wilderness. There's strength as he makes our bones strong. I'm reminded of Psalm 32 and other places where it says, when I hid my sin, my bones were brittle and were breaking dry. Here are bones, the images, bones being made strong, were strengthened inwardly. There's refreshment as like a well-watered garden, God pouring out his spirit upon us and refreshing us inwardly and outwardly. And then there's an ultimate picture of rebuilding, the rebuilding that God is doing in this world, the restoration that he's bringing as he calls men and women to Christ that points ultimately to the restoration of all things in the new heavens and the new earth. All of that is what God is doing through the Sabbath day as he commands us to observe it. Not the least of which, verse 14 again He will make us to ride on the heights of the earth. Remember Habakkuk, right? The last chapter of that short minor prophet, as he considers everything that God is doing, it's still a mystery to him. But as he considers it all, he says he's like the deer on the high mountains. He's he's above all that is happening because God is lifting him up. He's able to ride above the things of this world and this life. Now, there's a lot more that I could say and perhaps should say, if we divided this out into more than one sermon, I just wanted to do just this one. 
and to invite you, to encourage you to consider these things. Let me give you four words, if you will, briefly of application. Please don't dismiss out of hand. Perhaps you think it's not for you, but please don't dismiss out of hand. Uh, The warning against mere formalism. The Bible is filled with these kinds of verses uh, in Isaiah and all the prophets. This was their great sin. Their hearts, you, you see in the beginning, right? You see it, cry it aloud. Don't hold back. Tell the people what the real issue is. The real issue is they like to come together and worship, do everything I command, but their hearts are far from me. Please, I beg you this morning to heed the warning against mere formalism. Our greatest crimes really do lie in our piety. We are really good, and pastors are good at it too, so know that. We're really good at presenting the picture that we want to present when at times our hearts are broken, our lives are in shambles, we're having difficulties and struggles. That's true of pastors. Pastor Fisher and I can both attest to that. It's true of everyone, even the most spiritual person you know. The temptation to be merely formal, outwardly displaying something, is great in the Christian life. And the Bible is filled with warnings against it. Be warned this morning against mere formalism. Let your heart, by the grace of God and the work of his spirit, be fully engaged as you worship him. Secondly, note the picture that we clearly see here of spiritual health and vitality. That's one way to describe 8 through 12 in verse 14. This is a picture of spiritual health, maturity, and vitality of what some today like to call the flourishing of the Christian in this world. It's rooted in the Sabbath. That's where it's rooted. The right observance with a heart engaged, a life engaged in the Sabbath and what God has given to us on this day. I used to carry in my Bible, um, I've told many of you the story of this, I won't tell it now, but the story of this cover that I've had for many years from a dear sister in the Lord who's now with the Lord. Um, I used to carry in this a little brochure written by a pastor who was in the midst of retiring and wanted to communicate something to his congregation. It was about why he started evening worship in his church. And I kept it because when I came here to village, there to village in 2001, I said to the session and the church committee, when I come, I'm telling you, we're just going to start evening service because I believe the whole of the day is the Lord's and we need to worship him the whole of the day. So I used to carry this. And in this, he researched, did a lot of things, spoke anecdotally about his own church. And he said, listen, I can tell you without a doubt that the members of my church who faithfully kept the Sabbath and worshiped and gathered with God's people morning and evening every single week, barring unforeseen circumstances and providences, I can tell you they are the most mature, most stable Christians that I know. Now, I know that you're going to hear that and you're going to say, well, pastor, what are you trying to say? All I'm trying to say is God's word is true. It's not a formula. There are people who can have a formal outward. I'm there every Sunday morning and evening, Sunday school. I'm there two hours before church starts, Wednesday evenings, every meeting the church ever has. And their hearts can be far from God and God will never bless them. I get it. 
But if we are, our heart's engaged, and we're following what God says, these blessings are real. And they issue forth in a picture of spiritual health and vitality and growth before the Lord. Because it's a gift to us. It's a gift for that very purpose. He loves us and he wants us to grow in our relationship with him. He wants us to flourish. He wants us to be reminded every week when six days of our week we are overcome with the realities of this life. He wants to meet us on the first day of the week before we enter that and say, I want you to remember who you are and who I am. I want you to remember my promises. I want you to remember, 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 remember. I want you to know it. And then six days pass and we need it again. That's a gift. And when people give themselves to it, holy morning and evening, statistics show it. This man believed it. I believe it because I believe God. Thirdly, follow the path of calling the Sabbath a delight. Right now in your life, are you calling and do you call this day your chief delight? It's because you meet with God, not because we're great preachers or because you like the people in the church. It's because you meet with God. That's why it's a delight. Are you calling the Sabbath a delight? This really is, I believe, and I know there's a lot of debate even within our denomination, so we're not going there. This is why our forefathers, the Westminster Divines, wrote the confession the way they did. They didn't do it. I am persuaded. I've read enough of them. I am persuaded that what they had in view, and I know what they had in view, was Isaiah 58. When they wrote what they wrote in chapter 21 of the confession, the very last phrase, this is what they wrote. And they wrote it because they knew everything I've just said this morning is true. And so this was their teaching, their encouragement. This Sabbath is then to be kept holy unto the Lord. When men, after a due preparing of their hearts, heart worship engaged, and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, let your Sabbath practice begin the night before, really wise, helpful, we can talk about it. Do not only observe a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole of the time in public and private exercises of his worship, and in the duties of necessity and mercy. Now that picture comes from Isaiah 58. And yes, people hear that and they say, legalism, red flag, lights, it's not legalism. It's not legalism. It is understanding that the Sabbath is about worship, first and foremost, and that the prohibitions, if you will, the reminders that we're to rest from, lay aside these other things, is merely to serve the purpose of the day. That's all. They're not rules and forbidden. They come from a background. They come from a context, I know. But their motivation is that they would free the person to worship the Lord the whole of the day, privately and primarily corporately. Finally, you need to look as you consider this teaching to the day's ultimate fulfillment. It is but a picture, the Lord says in his word, for the people of God, of our eternal Sabbath rest when Jesus comes. We are sharing in that with our brothers and sisters who are now enjoying that rest before the Lord and his throne. New graces will sing in a moment, ever gaining from this day 
of our rest. We reach the rest remaining to spirits of the blessed. We are resting with them in the spirit as they are now before the Lord himself. We share in that great rest as we observe this rest on this side of glory and the rich and incredibly great blessings that the Lord has promised to us. This weekend, we know Mark's the 20th anniversary of the worst attack on American soil that happened on September 11th, 2001. Many of us today who are old enough, that means you're above probably, well, definitely 20, but even older. Many of us, of course, will never forget those days. Our children who aren't 20 or under 20, obviously, don't even have a memory of it because they weren't alive. But they need to remember as well and never forget. One of the things I remember as a pastor on that horrific day and all that followed uh, is that the Lord seemed at that point to stir the hearts of many people in this nation to seek something more stable, stronger than what they were trusting in up until that point. When they saw those towers fall, an image of America's invincibility They began to see their own lives as vulnerable, and they began to seek. I I don't doubt that the Lord was working. We read and read at that time of churches filling up as people sought answers for their questions. Many marveled at what God seemed to be doing in our nation. Was it revival? Was it reformation? People surely needed answers, and they sought them from God, or so it seemed. Not long after those days and months, people's lives returned to normal again. Daily routines returned, and soon many forgot the questions they were asking, and they simply went back to normal, back to the golf course, back to the family gatherings, back to their old routines of seeing Sunday as just being another Saturday. It was a moment of crisis, of fear, of confession and confusion, and they were looking for something They felt compelled to give God a try, but many of them, we know, never fully entered into it. So many never really met with God. For so many, it was just a useless and external exercise, and there was no fruit that was borne out. Sometimes we as Christians can live our lives like this. We move in our spiritual life from one crisis to another, one high to another, always seeking some new experience of God as I've had people talk to me no longer coming. But when I would visit with them, they would say, I'm just coming because I want to feel like I used to feel. And I say, it's not about your feeling. It's great when God gives you the joy unspeakable and full of glory, but it's really not about your feeling. But they wanted that feeling. They wanted that experience with God. And so we move from one experience to another, looking for something to move us, but always in the end feeling empty. What we learn in this passage, and it is an incredibly beautiful thing, is that what the Sabbath day is all about is that God is found and known in an ever-deepening way in the ordinary, regular setting aside of one day in seven, a day of worship where we truly take pleasure in him, This is where we meet him uniquely. Doesn't mean we don't meet him in our closets, in our homes, in family worship. This is where we meet him uniquely. 
and where he feeds us the heritage of our fathers, where we are reminded of his promises, of his hand of blessing, where strength is given for the journey, and we remember who we are and whose we are, where we join with other believers in the worship of God and take delight and deep pleasure in him, where we truly rest in all that he is and are equipped to enter back into this fallen world with a call and promise of blessing to all who would hear. This is our day. The Puritans called it the marketplace of the soul, the market day of the soul. This is the Lord's day. This is his Sabbath. It is ours. May he grant to each one of you this morning and always to always call it a delight. Let us pray. Father, we rejoice so much this morning in this day that you have made. Our hearts are overflowing with gratitude that you have been so kind to us to give us this one day in seven where we might rightly set aside the thoughts and activities of our normal lives to give ourselves more fully with hearts engaged, lives engaged in the worship of our great God. We call it a delight. It is because you are our great delight. And here we meet with you. And we give you thanks and bless your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to end by singing, I think it's the only hymn.